Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files, the billion-dollar woman, Spanx founder Sarah Blakely. How she went from selling fax machines door-to-door to cutting the feet off her pantyhose creating a blockbuster product that has fended off countless imitators. All this while becoming the mother of four kids under seven, and why she signed on with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates to give away the majority of her wealth. I sat down with Sarah Blakely in front of an audience of remarkable female entrepreneurs right here in New York. Here's our conversation. This is neat for me because I profiled Sarah for a CNN series called Leading Women a few years ago. And now I get to be with her again. I was at such a different point in my life. I, had yes. no, I didn't have a baby. Now you're a mom. I had no idea what actual work-life balance was. <laughs> yeah, you asked me all about it. I did. And I literally go, I'm a work in progress. That's, that's how I answered that. So she has four. Sarah yeah. has four I have kids. four children under the age of seven. Wow. <laughs> so let me tell you how happy I am to be here in New York. I woke up at the Greenwich Hotel and I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like, right? I didn't hear mommy 400 times by the exactly. time. The only tr- trouble is, though, I'm on the mommy schedule, so I got up at five of anyway. Course. I was like, oh. So let's get started. Um, on a much more serious note, this is an issue uh, that means a lot to me, right? Why is there still such an equity when it comes to funding female run businesses? How can that be in 2017, and what lessons can we learn from Sarah? I was just looking at some of the numbers. And when you look through what PitchBook's data says, I mean, venture capitalists invested over $58 billion in companies with all male founders last year. They invested $1.46 billion for female companies. That big of a difference? And last year in 2016, women got 2.19% of VC funding. That is a smaller piece of the pie than in every year this past decade. So it's getting worse in some respects. So that's just the challenge that we we women are up against, which is pretty stunning. Um, And what's so fascinating because if you study the microfinancing, the women have such a higher return rate as far as returning the investment than the men do. And companies that are run with more women at the top are more profitable. (laughs) So the number, it doesn't make sense. We'll get into all that in a moment, but let me just start with how your husband describes you. I have read as 50% Lucille Ball, 50% Einstein. (laughs) Is that accurate? (laughs) The Lucille Ball part for sure. Yeah. I, um, yeah, he, that's how he sees me. Um, (laughs) you guys are so young. Do you know Lucille Ball? I think they do. She's like awesome. So great. Um, yeah, I, I think because uh, I've achieved all this level of success, but there's, you know, I'm very quirky and make mistakes and fumble through my day and will do things where he's like, how did huh? you not think of that or that's crazy? And so I think he's a little baffled by... Well, it makes you a little more real that. to all of us because I think when you see you on the cover of Forbes and you see, you know, you know Forbes reports your net worth at over a billion dollars, the youngest woman in the world to become a self-made billionaire. I should know, giving. <laughs> Thank you. 
I, I should note, guys, giving almost all of it away, signing the giving pledge with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, which is remarkable as well. That's the most fun part of making it. Well, it's true, you know? right? It's true. Did you? I, I mean, say it's so much fun to make money. It's fun <laughs> to spend. It's fun to give away. It's fun to make. It's just. I'm very positive about it. And I just, I That's a great headline. It's fun to make money and give it away. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I, I like to talk about this a little bit because a lot of entrepreneurs or women in business, it can be women or men actually, um, have a negative connotation about money without realizing it. And that can be a real block for them achieving great success. So I always like to ask people like really, you know, I meet people all the time, they're like, give me 10 minutes of your time. And within five minutes of talking to them, sometimes I can tell that they, are, they need to work on their relationship or their thought about being able to receive and um, have tremendous wealth mm. come into their life or tremendous success, whatever that looks like. It doesn't always have to be wealth. So That's I like really to say that point. money just makes you more of who you already were. If you're a jerk, you become a bigger jerk. If you were nice, you become nicer. If you were insecure, you become more insecure. It's kind of like it holds a magnifying glass up to who you are. And so I never subscribe to like money making people turn crazy or, you know, but, but you got to think about that. Some people have an Uncle Louie who got a bunch of money and then left his family and his life went to, you know, crap. And, and so subconsciously you might yeah. be associating achieving significant wealth with that happening to you in your life without recognizing it. So let's go back to the, to, <laughs> let's go back to the very beginning. You have said, uh, I've never dreamed visible panty lines and uncomfortable thongs would inspire me to become an inventor. So for people in the room who don't know the story of how Spanx happened, tell us. Okay, so I um, am a frustrated consumer. I never worked in fashion or retail. I'd never taken a business class. I was actually selling fax machines door to door at the time for a living for seven years. And uh, cut the feet out of control top pantyhose one day so that I could wear my cream pants to a party with great strappy heels. And um, just recognized there was such a void in the undergarment space for women between the panty, which left a panty line, a visible panty line, and then these really heavy duty thick yeah. girdles. And Spanx just filled that lane between the two. I say that there was the panty, then they invented the thong, which just put underwear exactly where we've been trying to get it out of. <laughs> and then the shapers were no good. So, um, so that's how Spanx came to me. But the idea and, and how this happened happened long before I cut the feet out of my pantyhose. And it began with $5,000? Yes, it began. I, I'm self-funded. I started with $5,000 in my apartment, and um, I'm self-funded still and own 100% of Spanx. So Nobody gave me any money, and I also really didn't understand that world. You didn't understand I didn't the understand the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm a case study of if you have no idea how something's supposed to be done, but does it anyway. I mean, I did not understand people raise money. I didn't know, I really didn't know anything. I mean, I didn't know anything about the undergarment industry. I just trusted my gut and really um, used my own personal compass through this journey of figuring things out along the way. One interesting thing that Sarah told me that I'll never forget is, um, you know, don't share your idea with too many people before you execute because a lot of those naysayers can really get in your head and can block you from doing things. Yeah, I actually, when I had the idea for Spanx, I didn't tell any friends or family for one year. 
And the reason I did that is not because I don't have the most lovely friends and family that are supportive. I just intuitively didn't want to put it out there just for validation purposes. I told patent attorneys, I told manufacturers, told people that could help me move this forward. But I didn't turn to my right or left and say, hey, what do you think of this idea? And the reason I did that is because I didn't want to invite ego into the process too early on. And I wanted to spend all my time pursuing this instead of defending it and explaining it. Mm -hmm. And out of love, you know, we have million dollar and billion dollar ideas all the time. And it's just human nature to immediately turn to your right or left and tell your best friend or your husband or your boyfriend or, you know, someone in your life. And, and out of love and concern, a lot of ideas get squashed mm -hmm. in that moment. So that was uh, an important part of my journey and, and a really big reason why I think I'm still not selling fax machines. Because after a year of working at, on it at night and on the weekends, I still had my day job. Um, I literally sat friends and family down and was like, okay, they all knew I'd been working on this crazy idea. And when I shared with them what it was, you know, I got, well, sweetie, if that's such a good idea, why doesn't it already exist? Yeah. And, you know, even if this is a good idea, the big guys will knock you off in six months and put you out of business. Which they've tried to do, yeah, but they have. you're still sitting here. Yeah, they came after me hard, and, and <laughs> they still are, you know. So it's like a competitive. It, of course. Who doesn't want their butt to look great, <laughs> right? I mean, this is a competitive space. Um, and you've branched out so far beyond that to yeah. athleisure yeah. and bras and so much more, right. which we'll talk about in a moment. But still, in the early days, talk about your first phone call with the first buyer. Was it Neiman Marcus? Yeah. And what that was like, finally getting someone on the phone to say they'll, they'll even give you five minutes. Yeah, this is another perfect example of not ha having any idea how it's supposed to be done. So I called Neiman Marcus when I got my prototype at finally where I wanted it to be. I, I worked with a manufacturing plant in North Carolina. I'd been driving there on the weekends and taking weeks off work here and there when I had vacation time. And um, anyway, I called Neiman's and I flew to Dallas. I didn't even know, I called the local Neiman's in Atlanta where I live and I said, hi, I'm Sarah, I invented a product, can I come show it to you? And the lady on the switchboard laughed, she's like, um, we have a buying office and that's in Dallas. I was like, oh, okay, what's their number? And then, you know, and then I called. Can you connect me? Yeah, exactly. I called them and just from cold calling all day, every day for the last seven years, I knew don't leave a message. So I just kept calling for days until the buyer actually picked up the phone. That's like how I get interviews. I just call and call and yeah, call and call until they never say leave yes. a message, right? So then, I, yeah, so I had that two minutes. I said, hi, I'm Sarah. I invented a product that's going to change the way your customers wear their clothes. And if you give me 10 minutes of your time, I'll fly to Dallas. She said, okay. I flew there. Um, I brought my lucky red backpack, which my friends were like, don't bring the backpack to Neiman. <laughs> it was from college. It was dingy. It was like an East Pack red backpack. But I was convinced it was good luck. And so I brought it and, you know, literally my friends were like, buy a Prada bag, return it the next day. <laughs> like, you just can't bring this thing to the Neiman's headquarters. And I was like, ah. So anyway, I brought it and I'm sitting there with this lady who's so impeccably dressed. I mean, her pen matches her belt that matched her shoes, you know, and I'm like, from my, you know, pull yeah. up my red backpack and I had my prototype in a Ziploc bag from my kitchen. And my packaging was a color copy from my friend's computer. But um, what happened was afterwards, you know, she said, I'll try it. And she put it in seven stores. And I called every friend I had in those seven cities and I bought my own products. 
So I, I called them and I literally was calling people like since fourth grade that I hadn't talked to. Go by, please yeah, go by. That's I'm like, back. hi, this is Sarah. Remember me in eighth grade? Well, I would love for you to go into this Neiman's and buy this product called Spanx and I'll send you a check. And um, so they did. But I ran into people in the industry and they said, how in the world did you get into Neiman's? Yeah. And I looked at them and I was like, I called them. <laughs> and they were like, what? I go, why? What do you do? And they were like, um, we go to trade shows and we've been going to trade shows every year yeah. for seven years and hoping that the Neiman's buyer will visit our booth. And I didn't even know there were trade shows. So there's just a lot to the story and the journey like that where it's like when you don't know, it can work in your favor. You just have to have the confidence that it's okay that you weren't technically trained in what you're doing. You still might be the one in the right. room that's supposed to make and the big difference. It might make you better at it because you come to it with an outside perspective. I mean, I was reading a recent New York Magazine piece on you, and they quote you as saying, they write, she wasn't exactly passionate about hawking clunky office equipment in subtropical heat in Florida. They were sort of over that seven-year stint. And apparently you said to yourself, I woke up one day and I thought, I'm in the wrong movie. Call the director. What happened? This isn't my life. Yeah. Is, that, is that true? That is true. So after selling fax machines and being kicked out of offices for seven years, I mean, people ripping up my business card in my face, it was tough. I mean, all cold calling um, and soliciting without being asked to come into businesses. Uh, I pulled off the side of the road one day on a particular hard day. I mean, I just had been kicked out of everywhere. And I, and I, just, I just remember thinking, I'm in the wrong movie. Like, how did this happen? This is not my life. And I went home that day. I literally said out loud, like, call the director, call the producer, cut. This is not right. And I went home and I wrote in my journal. I just started thinking, what am I good at? What am I good at? How do I get myself out of this situation? And the only thing that really was in the good column was sales. And I looked at it and I said, okay, I'm good at sales. Why am I good at sales? I like to offer things to somebody that they don't already have or provide something for someone that makes an impact or changes their life. And in that moment, once I recognized what it was I liked about sales, I wrote down in my journal, I want to invent a product that I can sell to millions of people that will make them feel good. That's what you want. Before you knew the product, Before you knew, I knew you anything. wanted the, You knew the outcome you wanted. I knew what I wanted, and then I was very specific. I asked the universe for the idea. I said out loud, please give me the idea, and I promise I'll run with it. And two years later, uh, the idea came to me. I cut the feet out of pantyhose to go to this party, and I put them on under my cream pants, and every, my rear end looked amazing. There were no lines. <laughs> You know, it looked like I'd been photoshopped basically, and I could wear these cream pants that I bought at Arden B in the mall for like $89. Yes. And I was so frustrated that I could never wear these pants because everything showed. And, um, and I, I, I only cut the feet out of my pantyhose one time because I had already set my intention and asked for an idea. And so once that happened, I started calling manufacturing plants, I looked up on the internet. I went to the Georgia Tech Library where I lived and started looking up patents on pantyhose. I wrote my own patent. Um, wow. I bought a book on patents and trademarks at Barnes and Noble on Peachtree. I think. I know. I, I know <laughs> Everything's Peachtree in Atlanta. It's, that is very true. Um, when Sarah did, how hard was it to get people to take you seriously? Um, because let's just be honest. I mean, as young blonde women. I can attest to that. It is hard. And it sounds like even some of your family 
was skeptical at the beginning. So yeah. how did you get them to really take them, take you seriously as you scaled this company? Well, um, in the beginning, they didn't take me seriously at all at the manufacturing plant. So that was probably the most challenging, just to get these men who I found out were the ones making all of our undergarments. And I was like, oh, no wonder they're so uncomfortable. <laughs> now I get it. Okay, like the people wear, making them are not wearing them, so or not spending all day in them. Um, so I... <laughs> and if they are, they're not admitting it. So I... I didn't have a lot of um, help there. They did not think it was a good idea. They kept saying, no, we don't get it. We don't understand. They were on autopilot. A lot of us get on autopilot and just do things the way they've always been done. And they were making hosiery. Their material was meant to be seen on the leg. And so I showed up and was like, no, 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 no. I don't even want it to be seen. I'm making undergarments out of hosiery. They're like, undergarments aren't made out of hosiery. I'm like, I know exactly. But your hosiery is like second skin. As a woman who loves fashion, it's going to be a thin layer between my clothes and me and make everything just fit nicer and flow better. And I've got them on right now. I was very tempted to just flash you guys. But she does. Go look I am at a her flasher. Instagram. I know. She's I flashed just now on my Instagram coming here. I put a lot of, I just joined Instagram. I just joined social media. I think I was the last one on the planet They to are join. incredibly entertaining. <laughs> well, I, I just put it all out there. I'm like trying to juggle being a mom, own a business. So I like to be real and show women, there's no filter going on on my Instagram. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's like my mom's like, you looked a little rough in that, in that one. I'm like, I know, it's like first thing in the morning and you know, all kinds of stuff. But, but it's important for people to see I'm, that you're not perfect, that none of us no, are perfect. Please. And this is what life is like being a working mother, uh, it's, let alone running a, 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 an, an empire like you are. What it, since we're on social media, you know, yeah. that's a really interesting decision for business leaders to make. I interview yeah. a lot of CEOs, as you know. Some of them are very active. Some of them, uh, like a Twitter account is anathema to them. They yeah. do not want it. What was that decision like for you to say, all right, I'm going to put it out there, and that's the right thing not only for me but for my brand because, frankly, what you do reflects on your brand. Yeah, I was scared. I mean, I have to be honest, I was scared. I was like, is anyone going to be my friend? Um, how does this work? What if nobody likes me? You know, all these normal things that, that everybody probably feels. And my team just kept saying, Sarah, you really should do it. And I'm very private. I've been very private. Um, so I, I didn't know how that would feel. And I also didn't, I was a little nervous that I might feel like a slave to it. Like I, I might start to be to that it. instead of living my life and being present, I might be more oh, hyper aware of this. But it's been a blast. I've been on for like three months. Please go to my Instagram, be my friend. I'm at Sarah Blakely. And if you put in, in a post that I've done recently, if you just put in it rent, like hashtag rent, I'll pick random people and just send you free products. Ooh, yeah. I think you're gonna have a lot of people doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, so for you, it's been, I mean, have you noticed I, any impact on the business? You know what I noticed is that I, I don't get as much time as I would like to spend with my employees. I don't get as much time to spend with my customers and um, vendors that we use. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like they're getting uh, to know me. And I think that's nice, you know? And, that, and so I've just found that that's been a positive thing for 
people understanding what I'm all about and, and why I'm doing this and what matters to me. And I'm very focused on helping other women. That's yeah. a big part of my life. It's a big part of my journey. And I saw Instagram as an opportunity to do that. So I give a lot of tips, advice. I tell stories about different moments in my journey that I was stuck. Mm -hmm. I share difficult times in my life. You know, I've lost a very close friend. I posted about that, um, how I kind of moved through that and worked through that. But um, and I first joined when I did the belly art book. Yeah. So that was a main. Tell them about that. That was a main reason too. So um, when I was pregnant with my first son, I woke up three days before I delivered him, and I thought, Oh my God, my body's amazing! Like, look at this belly. This is unreal. There's I can't, a baby. I in there. can't believe this is what the a woman's body can do. I've got to do something with it, and I saw it as a canvas. And so I wanted to turn my belly into objects before my body changed and may never be in that state again. So I wrote down on a piece of paper at three in the morning, watermelon, beach ball, basketball, and Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> and I went back to bed and I woke up in the morning and I called my friend and I said, could you come over and paint my belly these things and I'm gonna run around Atlanta and pose in different situations. And so- That's what I did right before I had my baby. <laughs> so, um, I painted a watermelon and I went into the local grocery store in Atlanta and literally bellied up to the top of the watermelon display at Kroger. And you cannot tell the difference between my belly and the watermelon. And then I did a basketball and I found a real basketball game going on at a park and literally ran up to the side of the basketball and was like, hi, and they, they didn't speak English, I didn't know that, so I had to mime it. I'm like, can you look like you're gonna pass my, my ball? And so all of these like guys are literally like, and the picture, all these pictures, so it ended up becoming a beautiful coffee table book. It's called The Belly Art Project. 100% of the proceeds goes to Every Mother Counts, mm. um, Christy Turlington's, Turlington's Foundation to help make maternal uh, childbirth safe for women all around the world. But um, seven and a half years in the making and over 100 women, half of them famous, half of them women I stalked at like airports and nail salons and other people's weddings. Because you can't necessarily do a cast call for pregnant women. I had to just come across them. Maybe and they I'll had like to be like eight months pregnant. Okay, you get into Neiman, your friends buy your Spanx, yes. things are rocking and rolling, things are going well. Take me back to 2001 because the mill that you were working with suddenly files for bankruptcy, yep. days notice, yep. and this is the linchpin to the business, right? I mean, this, I mean, if you don't have anyone making your product, what are you going to do? Yeah, I didn't realize it. The manufacturer that I was using um, was in financial crisis, and they went out of business and gave me about seven days notice. Mm -hmm. And I had landed Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Nordstrom, and I had all these orders due. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, it was so business is like that, you know. I mean, it's literally, I think of it as a boat, you know, where have you seen the cartoons where like the holes here and they go like <laughs> yeah, that and there's it. this and you're using your like feet and your hands. And I mean, every day there's some new hole and you, you plug it and then, and the same's happening with opportunities in business. You're like, oh my God, that's amazing. And, um, so what did you do? I mean, I, I ended up just ca calling and cold calling like crazy other manufacturers. I found one in Asheboro, North Carolina that I still use today. They're amazing. And, um, and uh, I had a period of time where I couldn't fulfill orders, but Saks and everyone was understanding and I was able to make it work. It but right. I, I'm a believer of starting small, thinking big and scaling fast. So because I was still operating my headquarters in my apartment, I had almost no overhead. 
that crisis didn't put me under. You didn't get too far ahead of I where didn't you get, could I be. I didn't, I'm not, I wasn't seduced by the dream of like, let me go raise $20 million or let me go spend a fortune on an ad campaign. I mean, I was like, spend what you have, spend what you have, Smart. spend what you have. And I kept, I mean, Spanx was my headquarters for almost three years in my apartment. Richard Branson is a mentor of yours. I'm interested in what he taught you, what you learned from him. Well, I did his crazy show, and that's how we After met. After everyone told you not to. Yeah. So uh, he, Richard Branson had a reality show. It was much like The Apprentice, but um, instead there were business challenges, but instead of them all taking place in New York City, they took place in a different city around the world. And if you didn't win the business challenge, instead of going to the boardroom to get fired, you had to do a world record-breaking, death-defying stunt. Okay? <laughs> I did not know this part about the agreement when I signed up. I'm so afraid to fly. I'm afraid of heights. Me too. Oh. So anyway, I traveled the world with Richard and 16 other entrepreneurs that were being eliminated every couple days along the way. And it was the wildest experience of my life. Um, it, I was four years into Spanx. Nobody wanted me to do it. It was reality TV. But I was always intrigued by Richard Branson. And I yeah. saw this as my opportunity to become a friend or get to know him. I had read his book in college. so. I did it. I mean, literally, my dad is an attorney, and they sent me the contract. Fox sent me the contract. It was 27 pages. It literally said, we can p submerge you underwater. We can uh, uh, put you in political unrest. We can put you near fire. Like, literally, it was the craziest one-sided contract you've ever <laughs> seen in your life. And I emailed my dad, and I'm like, Dad, can you help me with this contract? And all he wrote back was, no sane person would sign this. Love, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and I signed it. So, <laughs> so I signed it. And, you know, the, just to give you guys an idea, it was called The Rebel Billionaire. And the very first day of filming, okay, the day before I was in the Starbucks drive through in Buckhead, Atlanta, the very next day I'm in England and I'm awoken at four in the morning to go out to a field to go up in a hot air balloon and climb a balance beam between two hot air balloons no. at 8,000 feet in the air. No, I'm you not kidding. did it? I couldn't do it. I was like one of the only contestants that couldn't do it. And so I freaked out. I was like, oh, I, can't. I tried. I stepped out of the basket, and then I just kind of like lost it. And so then, because myself and one other guy are the only two that couldn't do that, I had to do something even harder, which I did do. So then I, Richard turns to me, it's like, so Sarah and Tim, you two losers basically, are, are gonna now have to climb the side of the hot air balloon on a dangling rope ladder. So I had to climb to the top of the hot air balloon on a dangling rope ladder and meet him at the top of the balloon for tea at 10,000 feet in the air. Never, I would have been on the next plane home. Yeah, I don't know why I wasn't, but I, I did it, and I'm so proud of myself. It was terrifying. I'm terrified. I'm of proud of you. It took me 48 minutes to climb it, and the height of a balloon is the 17-story building. They're huge, and it was hot. Like no, I set a world record. I'm the only woman in the world dumb enough, really, I guess, to do this. So I set a world record that day because you know. So I knew that Fox hadn't really tested this out. I mean, I was charting new territory. Yeah. <laughs> and it was real. And then when I was on top, I did my little tea thing with oh we clanked teacups and then I just thought, how do I get down? <laughs> how do I get down? I had to climb Same down. Thing, the worst, right? I climbed backwards oh on the ladder. 
Anyway, I didn't. There's a clip did, of that. From I think, all my research, online. I didn't know that story. I know. I don't. I, did not I don't know normally that talk story. about it that much, oh but my it goodness. was. I just posted, okay, so Richard, I posted a clip of it on my Instagram. So Richard Branson taught you what is the what? So you've obviously gotten to know and become friends. And yes. your plan worked, Sarah. You had to climb the balloon, but yeah, you're now friends with Richard Branson. And he's, so what advice? What's the best lesson he's taught you? Um, Richard has a real bias for action, so he likes to say yes and learn along the way. And I think that's a true spirit of an entrepreneur. I mean, all of us are just going for it and. He doesn't wait for all the data. He doesn't wait for all the details. He's like, he's an instinctual guy and then he's in motion and it sets everybody else in motion. He's a great delegator. He, um, he you know, on the show, he didn't ask us to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. So he's that kind of a leader where he wants to um, be in it with mm -hmm. the people that he's asking to do things. Uh, he always, always had a notebook with him and I, I always have a notebook with me too. Ideas. Yeah, so he's always got it with them. And so it was the first time yeah. I had seen somebody yeah. else that really, Writes no matter down. what, has it with him. And he doesn't sleep much, which I do. I was blown I away. I sleep too. He can operate on like four, three to four hours. Yeah. All right, let's talk about imitation. Spanx was knocked off pretty much yeah. the second you got on store shelves. Yep. Why do you think it is that, that it has been able to have literal legs and to truly last out all of the imitators. Why and how and how hard was that fight and how mad did it make you to see so many people knocking off your idea? Um, okay, so the reason why I think I'm still here is because of my obsession with the product and never compromising on the fit and the quality and the results of the product. The industry I'm in is an easy industry to throw your hat in, but it's a really hard product or category to master and to master fit. So almost everything that I did was very counterintuitive in fit because I wasn't technically trained. I'm standing on the manufacturing floor and I, it was like we were speaking two different language. They'd speak their technical terms and I would speak feeling. So I'd stand there and I'd go, I'm feeling something right here. Like there, this is not right right here. And they'd be like, you know, I can't tell you anything that's going on. And just back and forth. And then finally they'd be like, well, we got a two by two splice yarn there that goes, you know, I'm like, okay, don't do that. Don't do the two by two splice, whatever that is. And we would go back and forth. And every time I asked them to make a change, they'd be like, it's not going to work. And it did. And it did. And then it was better. So it, it's been a very hard thing to duplicate Spanx because of all this. I mean, it's almost like anything that anybody in the industry trained would typically do, we'd do the opposite. Um, I also think that, you know, I, I didn't make decisions along the way to fight people with my patent because when you're small, you have to really allocate your resources wisely. And I just decided to keep making the next That's best really thing. really interesting. You didn't go after them legally. Mm -hmm. No, because, you know, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of legal fees. It's a lot of time. And when you're a small operation, I just kept inventing the next best thing and keeping them scrambling. But they really did knock me off blatantly, and they still do. I mean, one particular story is when Spanx was a year old, I had been on Oprah as her favorite product of the year. I was, you know, in all these department stores. I was actually, you know, when I landed Neiman's and Saks, that's when my hard work happened. I ensured my own success. I was never going to allow my success to be in the hands of anybody else along the way. It meant I had to work like you cannot believe, but that's what I, I found it took. So I went and stood in the department store floors 
from 8.30. I do an all-store morning rally with all the associates to get them excited about my invention, talk to them about it, and then I stood in their store and sold it for them from 9 until <laughs> 7 at night every day for two years. And I would just go all around the country. I'd do Neiman's one day, Saks the next, Nordstrom the next. Wow. And, you know, and they were the ones making the sales, but I was, that's what I needed to do to ensure my own success with them. But um, where was I going with this? Uh, well, you were just talking about how, <laughs> I mean, part that's of being really a mom interesting before. that you didn't, a daughter of a lawyer, I'm a daughter of a lawyer too. You right. also thought you were going to be a lawyer, took the LSAT. Yeah, I was so sad when I failed the LSAT because I was, by the way, you can't fail the LSAT. You might not have done as well, well as you wanted. Well, my score was so <laughs> low, I had to, like, it was at the very bottom of the page <laughs> twice. I took even a prep course for it and it was like, it was like one point higher. I was like, ah. It's terrible. Um, so you know what I did after that? What did you do? I got in my car and drove to Disney World and tried out to be goofy. So this, I'm so glad you brought Disney World. They, she did. I did. But you know what? I am too short to be goofy. So, I mean, here I am down and out. I just failed the LSAT, basically. I'm like, my whole life, I'm like, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer. Not. And now I'm too short to be goofy. Yeah. So you know what? I am the height of a chipmunk. So they made me a chipmunk. I mean. So she actually worked at Disney World. I did. Yes. I worked at Disney World for three months. Um, Tell me about the moment when you saw Snow White smoking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, my parents kept saying, you know, Sarah, you're just trying to escape reality. You know, you've just fled to Disney World. Like, you know, I was like, they're like, you're and I, I would go on break and sometimes Snow White would be like dragging on a cigarette. I'm like, I am not escaping reality. This is like, I'm like, this is not, Snow White says this be doing that. So anyway, I, um, so that was then. So it's like the real world was finding me no matter what. I was there like, okay, go. I'll go back out into the real world. And so I worked at Disney World for three months and then I got the job of selling fax machines door to door. Right for seven years. Okay, and so fast forward again past the, the new movie that we're living in. You, you have moved so far beyond the Spanx that I knew when I, you know, a long time ago now. You jumped into this athleisure sector. Can you talk about that? Because what's interesting to me is that's a, that is a, um, look, it's a risky bet. It's a space that there's a lot of product in and you're taking on some entrenched competitors. Just talk about that as a businesswoman, as a leader of a really big business. You employ so many people. Your decisions have a material impact on a lot of people's future. So talk about making yeah. those big decisions. Well, you know, I don't ever let the competition or the marketplace um, dictate what I do or not do. So um, if we see an opportunity to deliver something better for the customer, we do it. And in our leggings, we have, I knew I could beat everybody in fit. They fit absolutely amazing. We have a cult following for them. We have seamless leggings, faux leather leggings. Those are the two biggest franchise we have. But they don't have a center seam that goes from the crotch to the waist. So I saw that as an opportunity. You know, leggings have that seam that's mm -hmm. not super flattering. And so does active. Like all of my active pants have that seam. And so Spanx active are made without that. Um, and it's much more flattering. But the fit's amazing. Your rear end looks great in our products. It's just flattering. They're opaque. They're not sheer or see-through. They're really great quality. And um, the same with bras. You know, I didn't know anything about bras, but I did know I hated my bras. I thought they were so uncomfortable. And so I looked at the bra for the first time from the back. The mm. whole industry was looking at the bra and focused on the cups and support and support. And I was like, 
hmm, why is the back of a bra two elastic straps that go across my back? Is that the best way to make a bra? You know, it pinches my skin, it leaves marks across my back under my nice blouses or shirts. And so I started playing with the back. I always like to look at things like that. Mm. And um, went to the mill and said, what if we made an all hosiery back that had regular molded cups or regular front bra? And they were like, can't be done. I mean, everything's always like, can't be done. And then I would always say, we put a man on the moon. And then they'd go, well, we'll try it. And, um, and that bra, I have it on now, I wear it every single day. It's called Bralleluia because all the women that we put it on in the prototype stage would sing. And they'd be like, oh, we were like, Bralleluia, exactly. That's what it needs to be called. So if you haven't tried our bras, they're amazing. We just launched Spotlight on Lace, which is like this lingerie-inspired undergarments that hold in the tummy and smooth and make you look awesome under your clothes. But I'm obsessed with the Spotlight on Lace bralette right now. It fits everyone beautifully and men again it happens organically for me with product but my brother and my husband have their undershirts and they're boxy and they're bulky and they stretched out this was like seven years mm -hmm. ago that I went into men's and um, I just thought there could be a better way to make a man's undershirt yeah if it doesn't come out of their their pants all the time when yeah they're to tuck it in under their shirts that doesn't stretch out so I just made a cotton undershirt and added a little bit of lycris and tapered it in at the waist so it looks better under their dress shirts gives a little bit of low back compression mm -hmm. makes them look great in their clothes and um, and so the men love it and we have underwear that's I'm, I'm gonna say we reinvented the pouch Listen, the women in the office were so happy when we started making men stuff because there all of a go. sudden of we had men in the dressing room that <laughs> were doing all the prototypes instead of all the women. But, exactly. Um, but uh, the men that have worn our underwear, this is what they say, it keeps the family together. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just repeating what they said. You're so just they repeating love what our they underwear. said. Um, one of the things that, that struck me that you've said is that one of your greatest, greatest strengths, Sarah, is being underestimated. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I've certainly walked into interviews where people have thought, ah, just another young young woman, she doesn't really know what she's talking about. And then you just, yeah. you know, they can't argue with the facts. So what has that been like for you being underestimated and why has it helped you? Yeah, I always say that being a woman, I feel like being underestimated is one of our great strengths and it's also a weakness. So it's, it works in both ways. Um, being underestimated in the beginning was very difficult because I couldn't get anybody to help make the product, but then being underestimated along the way has been a competitive advantage. I have no problem being underestimated. I'm happy with it. I mean, the flakier you think I am or Bring whatever, it it's like, okay, you know, whatever your, your feeling is, but I think that it's, um, it's, it's an advantage for women. Um, especially because the competition or the people that you're up against, um, at least for me along the way, just didn't take me as seriously. Oh, I know where I was going with yeah. that other thing. It was the competition, yeah. you asked me about that? One in particular was so blatant a year into it, they took me, they called me and said, it was like the biggest in the industry making undergarments and hosiery. They said, Sarah, we want to take you to dinner. And they came to Atlanta and they took me to dinner at the Ritz. and. They gave me the impression that they were interested in buying me. And you know I wasn't for sale or thinking about that, but I was very interested in meeting them. And, um, and then I never heard from them again. They never called me again, nothing happened. And two months later, they launched an $8 million ad campaign with a similar product with a girl who looked exactly like me, blonde mm -hmm. hair, wearing a black t-shirt and cream pants, which was the only outfit that I'd been were, advertising yeah. in. 
and like looking over her shoulder with no panty lines. So then I was like, oh, that's what they were doing. They were sizing me up. And I obviously wasn't that intimidating. Wow. <laughs> so it's along the way, it's just yep. been like that. I mean, I've had people take my graphics on my packaging and put it on their packaging. One thing that I've noticed, I think now being a, a, a new mom, mm -hmm. is a lot of people at work come to me, a lot of really talented young women, and they talk about sort of what's next in their career, but should they even try for that because they want to have children? Mm -hmm. And it makes me sad because A, no, not one single dad has, you know, or a guy who wants to be a dad has asked me that. And it makes me sad because if anything, for me, being a mom has made me better at my job. I have less time, but I'm better with my time. And I don't believe in the work-life balance. I believe in a meld. I just wonder if you could talk about that as a mother of four, for people in the room who are thinking about, I want to achieve all these things with my career, but I also want to be a parent, what, you, what living it is really like. It's really hard, and I will say I cadenced my journey out. So I was single and not a mother when I started Spanx. I started it, I cut the feet out of my pantyhose when I was 27. I was 29 when the company started in my apartment, and it was 24-7 for me for several years. So I give, my hat comes off like you cannot believe for mothers that start their mm -hmm. entrepreneurial journey as mothers. Um, what has changed for me now that I am a mother and uh, still very involved in the business is um, I, I compartmentalize my days so that I, I feel like I can be pr really present in one bucket and really present in the other. I just, that's what I try to do. So like no phone when you're around the kids? Yep. Or I just have certain times where I just unplug completely on the weekends. Yeah. And do that and you know I I found also as a woman my think time is so important to me I love to sit and think I just I, I will spend hours just sitting and thinking with either music on or just and I realized that when I became a mother that disappeared from my life and I didn't know it had disappeared and then it started to manifest itself in very negative ways in my life like I started getting sick I I had I was run down, I was frustrated. There were all these issues that started happening and then literally one day I was crying and I was like, what, what is wrong with me and why am I not accessing any more of my creative self? And I just, this voice was like, you don't ever spend any time alone. And um, so, as a creative mother, we all do whatever we can. I recognize that my best think time is in the car mm -hmm. and I live five minutes from Spanx so I end up actually leaving the office an hour early and drive around aimlessly in Atlanta on my fake commute. <laughs> on your fake commute? I do. I'm a fake commuter. I'm the only one in Atlanta who wants a longer commute. But it's my time and I've recognized it. So that's my sacred space. I try to start as many days out that way as I can. But for some women it might be doing yoga or it might be meditating or it might be taking just a walk by herself mm -hmm. or you know, even leaving the office or leaving her space multiple times in the day and just being alone. But that's where it's really important. We, we, get our, you know, we get our best thinking and our energy often from just allowing ourselves to be connected to. I also think from what I can tell writer. from Instagram, I don't know your husband, although I know he just went and lived with monks yeah. to write this book. Yeah. Um, which is my husband. <laughs> but you have a part, you have an He engaged. just went and lived with monks for two weeks. 
to write to write in a monastery about what it's like. Yeah, he's an extreme athlete. He ran 100 miles without stopping. Like he's an ultra marathoner. He's an extremist. He had a Navy SEAL move in with our family for a month so he could get in really good shape. I was like. <laughs> I mean, literally, you know, I had four things going on. He's like, honey, can a, a, a Navy SEAL live with us? I was like, okay, yeah, you know. And like three days later, this man is at my my breakfast table. I was like, hi. Hi. He was like, hi. But it is, we are four. <laughs> and he lived with us for 30 days. I was like, this is really, I mean, so being married to my husband is just one big adventure. But we're fortunate to have, and I really mean this seriously, um, we, women need and deserve equal partners, and that's just yeah. the end of it. And if you're yeah. going to be a parent, your partner needs to do, should do half, and should want to do half. Right. And I would not be here, and you would not be no. there if you didn't have that. You're um, right. Jesse is super hands-on dad. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to sign the Giving Pledge at such a young age mm -hmm. with Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and a number of other billionaires to decide to basically give your wealth away. Yeah, um, I, I, it was really important for me to sign the Giving Pledge because I've been doing this from the very beginning with gratitude for being a woman born in the right country at the right time. I had nothing to do with that. Warren I feel Buffett like Buffett calls it winning the ovarian lottery. Yeah, that, that is it. And all women here sitting in this room, we all won the lottery. I mean, you know, there's so many women still to this day in the year 2017 that are not given an opportunity to fulfill their potential just because of their gender, which is not serving the planet. And I believe that our planet would be such a better place if the, mass, the male and female energy on the planet was more balanced. You know, not looking for women to rule the world or men to rule the world. I think that it's really gonna be the best when it's balanced and it's been really out of balance for about 3,000 years. And uh, all the things that matter most to me, from poverty to nuclear threat to the environment to, you know, all of these issues, I feel like in my short life, I identified one thing that I feel like will move the needle, and that is elevating the feminine and elevating women. So that's what I'm doing, and I, I donate my money back to women, and I do that because it's a pay, pay it forward feeling, and it's just staying in touch with the gratitude I feel about this. Even my own mother had limited choices compared to me. I mean, we're the lucky women yeah. in the lucky country at the lucky time by like 20 years. I mean, we've we been are. on the planet a while. I mean, when you think about just this sweet spot that we have, my mother had very limited options. My grandmother had almost no options. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is pretty relatively yeah. new for us. A little birdie told me, I'm a reporter, so this is what I do, right? I, I dig <laughs> on people. That, uh, that Hollywood is very interested in telling the Sarah Blakely story. So A, any interest in your story being told and who would play you? Um, well, <laughs> that's a, okay, I'm, listen, I'm open to it. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna really talk about it because I'm private that way with when I'm first exploring things, you guys heard I kept the Spanx idea yeah. a secret for a year. But yes, I mean, they, people have reached out to me on and off for the last 10 years wanting to do um, something big like that. And I, I'll just say that it feels more right now, um, more right than any other time. And really about it just inspiring and, and motivating other women. I feel like it's an important, important, if it can serve that, then that's exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Who would play me? I don't know, you tell me. Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> and she has a production company focused on women. Yeah, she does. So I love that too. She's amazing. Uh, thank you, Sarah. <laughs> thank you, Sarah, so much. Thank you.
Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.